You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. With me today are two fund management luminaries from South Africa. And coincidentally, they are both in New York at the moment, but for differing reasons. David Shapiro, of course, a regular on strictlybusinesspodcast.com, is there on family business. And John Bickard, portfolio manager at 91, has apparently relocated. So I've got two big shots in the big apple and david i just have to start with you welcome both of you by the way and thanks for doing this david you seem to be out of the frying pan into the fire because you leave south africa for six weeks not only on family business but all to get away from blackouts and you've gone to an orange out now what on earth is going on in new york this is uh pollution from the uh fires in canada and uh it's it's moved down to this whole area to the north northeastern states and i mean Yesterday, uh, you could hardly see the sun. It had this yellow, yellow phase. It was very, very eerie being around here. Uh, It seems to be clearing. But, you know, the one thing about New York or about the Americans, they keep you in touch all the time. Um, You know, nonstop uh, broadcast bulletins telling you how to keep safe. Uh, You see the mayor and you see the uh, governor of New York State. You see the mayor of uh, New York and so on. And that's one thing about that. Um, they're, they're, they're incredibly good in keeping you informed. My computer at the moment says 61 degrees Fahrenheit haze. Not too long ago, it had a danger signal. So mm. it does show you that the hazes, things are improving slightly. And you're on uh, 62nd, David, and John Bickard, uh, who haven't spoken to for ages for some extraordinary reason, is on 86th. But you're getting the same sort of thing there. You're staying indoors, <laughs> you're wearing masks, and you're being a proper New Yorker because you've moved there, of course. Yeah, I think I need to be more paranoid if I need to be a proper New Yorker. <laughs> 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 One would think it was the end of the world here. Yeah, oh, no. uh, a couple of bries have been lit and there's a bit of smoke around. So it's... Uh, but the New Yorkers are very, very quick to put on the masks. And uh, I think they've got uh, a million masks left over from the pandemic. As John says, there's, there's nothing like a, a crisis. The New Yorkers love a crisis. You know, and this is a crisis. <laughs> well, I wish South Africans would love a crisis a little bit more because then they might mm. take it a little bit more seriously. And that comes to why we're here. Mm. One of the reasons I've done this is because David and I speak every week and we, we're not unnecessarily moany about South Africa and South African stocks and the prospects for the future. But there's a, a realism about it, John. But you came out with an article on May the 10th, which was published in Business Day. And its uh, title was Value Investing. As the herd cashes out, it says, is it time to make money in SA stocks again? And you, of course, were the author. Now, what prompted that, please? Well, the the principal thing that prompted it was the massive underperformance of South African equities over the last five years. And if you go back five years ago when Ramaphosa came in, you know, we had a experience that people called Ramaphoria, where uh, everyone was very bullish and the rant was... Um, 12 to the dollar, and uh, everyone was buying South African shares. And basically, since then, and, and I must just go back and, and point out that at the time, I said, I don't want any South African shares because the valuations were moderate to high and the rant was pretty strong. But most importantly, everyone was bullish. And 
I remember having arguments with, uh, with people saying I'd rather go into point and throw my money in the sea five years ago. But five years later, yeah. for all the reasons that we are well aware of, all the problems in South Africa, basically South African equities, South African facing equities, not the brand hedges, not the commodity stocks, the domestic South African shares. Yes. In dollar terms, are down about sixty percent and are trading at valuations that we last saw in two thousand and one. So, you ask what has prompted it? The principal thing that prompted it was a change in the price, and not just a little change in the price, a sixty percent decline in the price, while all other markets, by the way, went up. So, as a value investor, the first thing that attracts me is valuation, and the valuation of South Africa has changed massively to the downside because the bad news is everywhere you know that everyone in the world now knows the problems that south africa has and if you five years ago there was some debate about eskim there was some debate about the politics and the way the country's run now you can't find anyone who doesn't know the bad news both domestically and internationally which to me means it's pretty much all in the price. That's what I was going to say to you, David, now, because it seems to me that what John is saying, it doesn't seem to me, is what he's saying. He says that everything now is fully discounted. And he says mm. the following, David, I actually sent it to you. I don't know if you've read it yet. I, I had to fill out a whole form to read it. You have to, <laughs> yeah, from, so did I. From I mean, 91, I can't where remember, do you live? I, How old are you? Yeah, How I much money you've got? I got are you worth it? Are you, huh? I got that exactly. Uh -huh. I can't remember my mother's maiden your name. Your maiden name? Yes, yeah, exactly. But anyway, I've Who got was your first puppy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got some insiders at 91, <laughs> so I got in quite easily. But it says here, David, more seriously, it says here, our conclusion here, David says, I mean, um, John says, is that foreign selling is exhausted and local uh, selling is 80% uh, done. Now, I'm going to ask uh, you uh, obliquely, how on earth do they come up with that conclusion and do you agree with it? I probably agree with uh, the valuations at the moment, with uh, what John's saying. Um, I've never been influenced by, by valuations. I've never been influenced by, um, you know, looking for bargains. I think... My whole philosophy, and I've, I've just got to state this because I'm, I'm going to come and agree with John. You know, I've always looked fr from an investment point of view on the quality of companies and uh, um, what the long-term outlook would be. You know, I've always said, where's a company five, 10 years, 15 years down? Do they have sustainability? Has South Africa got success? Those are the questions I ask. And I have, remember, I handle, I don't handle a fund. I handle individual portfolios. So yes. that's been my driving influence. Um, when you look, and I look at the, you know that we talk about the market all the time. And when I looked at uh, shares like some of our retailers, some of our banks, uh, they were at that bottom end of the range. Pick and pay is trading in rand terms at levels that it was in maybe 2010 years ago. Yeah. I'm going to take a guess at that. I haven't got it in front of me. If you go into dollar terms, it's probably 12, 13, 14 years, which means, uh, to put it into other terms, that the Ackerman family, and I've said this before, are, are half as wealthy, and they're wealthy still. You know, They can still afford to buy fresh bread. But, I mean, they're about as half as wealthy as they were 10 years ago. And that's what John's saying. Hold on a sec. Uh, you know, that's crazy that those valuations should be down where they are. Whether whether you want to come in and buy them at the moment, that's going to be our uh, that's going to be the debate. You know, whether 
whether or not um, this is nothing more than a bounce or whether this can continue to claw back to where it should be, where South Africa should be, you know, um, yes. from a historical point of view, yeah. Okay, John, again, I'll ask you now, because uh, a sort of a via third party asked you about where you get that from, the 80% and the exhaustion of selling. Are you just seeing, therefore, a vacuum? And that vacuum is going to be something that prompts a resurgence, not a V-shaped recovery, but certainly a base forming for South African equities. Uh, in other words, uh, stocks like Nedbank, and you use Nedbank as an example. So just as an aside, uh, 20 years ago, um, pick and pay was last at this price. Okay. But David was pretty close. So, um, yeah, so the, the, the story about the selling is not just a feeling. You know, it's based on the stats because every week the JSC discloses purchases and sales by foreigners. Yeah. So you can track that. And the fact of the matter is in the last three years, foreigners have sold 400 billion rands worth of South African equities. And that's a function of obviously all the bad news in South Africa. And foreigners now are trade at about 40% underweight the benchmark. So, and South Africa has come down in the benchmark of emerging markets because countries like Saudi Arabia have come in and been upweighted and China and we've been downweighted. So we've got smaller and the foreigners have taken an underweight position. So. They have exited 400 billion of equities. And by the way, I think the numbers, I'm not a bond guy, but I think the number is 600 billion of bonds. Mm, bond. that period. So yeah. foreigners trade, they used to hold 42% of SA bonds and now hold 22%. And instead of holding a neutral position of 3.5% in the index, they hold about 2%. So you add that all up, it means that between bonds and equities, there's been a trillion rand of selling of South African assets by foreigners. And then interestingly, at the same time, because often foreigners buy and locals sell and you know they sell to each other, but at the same time, coincidentally, um, you had a massive change from the treasury, which enabled South Africans to upweight their uh, offshore holdings from uh, most, most portfolios had 25 to 30% mm -hmm. offshore, and now the maximum has been increased over the last 18 months to 45%. Yes. So why I said in that article, I think the foreigners are done selling because they are now underweight and they've exited that 400 billion. And I just, it was a bit of a guess that the locals are 80% through the selling because every month we get an update where um, the offshore holdings are and it looks like the average unit trust using that as a proxy for most uh, funds is at about in the late 30s offshore now, going to a maximum of 45 from 20%, and actually from 0% 10 or 15 years ago. So, so you've had this situation where the foreigners have been exiting and the locals have been selling because they've been enabled to by the Treasury. So basically, that's why the prices land up where they did, because they have, there has been no buyer. For South African equities for the last three years. Okay, well, this is an interesting one because you could say to yourself, okay, let's have a look at those stats and they have compelling stats that you've just come up with. But on the other hand, if you'd have applied the same sort of principle to a share like Breit, for example, or a share like Steinhoff, you could be saying now, when it comes to the overall 
essay equity story that we're just at the beginning, not at the end. We're not at the end game now. We're at the beginning of something that might become more meaningful. Because even though you say that there's a, a discount of um, blackouts, load shedding for the rest of our lifetimes, the, the three of us, the fact is it could get worse and it could go on in perpetuity, as you say, John. So maybe it's not the, the end game. Maybe it's just at the beginning or in the middle. Am I being too harsh? Well, I would just say 100%. You can never time, you know, just because I write an article doesn't mean anything's going to do. You never time the bottom. But I would say um, I didn't write this article one year ago or two years ago, three years ago. May the 10th. Because, yes, I wrote it after five years of declines when, so, you know, you need two things. You need valuation. We've spoken about the valuation. Basically, you can buy SA stocks on seven PEs and 7% dividend yields. So there's no doubt it ticks the valuation box. And the second thing is positioning, which is, it's no good saying it's a 7P and a 7% dividend yield, but people have just started selling. I'm saying we're five years into it. So you're 100% right. You know, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to end today, tomorrow, or next month, but we're five years into it. And the stats show you we're very well advanced. So all I'm saying is we are, get, we are closer to the end than the beginning. And... We're certainly not halfway through. You know, it's a question of whether we 70, 80, 90, or 100 percent of the way through. And and this is the time you buy. You buy when everyone else is selling, and you sell when everyone else is buying. And that's that's the truth. Obviously, I mean, the Steinoff example. I mean, there's no value in you know Steinoff was a fraud. Yes. The, you know, there are a lot of South African shares that are not. You know, they are actually they don't have too much debt. You know, it's a sustainable story. It's not. You know, it's not going to zero, is what I'm saying. You know, if you can buy these quality South African shares. Okay, very good point. And this is where David comes in now, because I don't think you'll mind me saying this, David, that you have said on a number of occasions on StrictlyBusinessPodcast.com with me that you don't own a South African stock. Is no. that true? You can confirm no. that with John now. And mm, why is no. that? And will you, having listened to what John said over the last few minutes, will you be tempted to do so? Well, <laughs> I, I try to look... I go through a whole list every day and say, should I buy it? You know, what, what, what's attractive? And please bear in mind, Lindsay, we're ignoring um, 75% of the JSC in market cap, which are all those companies that operate offshore. Yes. Uh, even then, I'm not uh, enamored by them. You know, even if I go to the top end of the market here, if I go, I don't want to hold an ABN Bib, I don't want to hold a British American tobacco. I don't like NASPES. I don't like process uh, for business reasons, you know, for the quality of the business. I'm not, I'm not talking about valuations. I just don't like uh, the operations. And, um, and so we go down. I might be enticed to buy a Bitcorp or something like that. Uh, the miners are always attractive depending on where you are in the cycle. And I, I believe we're going to come to a, a better cycle soon. Um, as markets turn around, as we come to the end of monetary tightening. And I think that's going to be a driver for the SA market as well. But when I start to dig down and go into SA Inc. and saying, okay, well, what do I, what do I want to own? You know, if you want to own a bank, I've always told you, I, I, banks, banks thrive in bad times. Oh, sorry, in good times. You know, when everybody wants to spend, when, it, when there's mergers, acquisitions, uh, uh, people are, you know, buying houses on golf courses. All those kind of um, situations create, you know, that's when banks thrive. 
not where they borrow money at X percent and lend it out at X plus one. You know, that's very boring for bankers. They do that. That's what they're supposed to do. So I keep going through the market and saying, okay, where do I want to be? Do I want to be in a, uh, a manufacturer? Do I want to be in Tiger Brands? Nah, don't like management, don't like where they are, and so on. So I go through the whole market, and there's nothing that gives me the incentive to buy anything, regardless of valuations, uh, compared with what you can get offshore. And remember, I'm, I can go 100% offshore for clients. You know, I don't, I'm not confined to the 40% rule or, or so on. And that's the kind of iterations I go through. Do I like this business? And I go through results. Every day I try to go through the results to see if there's anything that attracts me to these businesses. And we've got good business people suffering in very, very difficult situations. And as we go through the results now, you just start to count how much money is being set aside uh, to provide power that should be a given, and that money should be get. You know, this is another reason that I'm very nervous: is that that money should be going into advancing the company, you know, uh, yes. uh, rebuilding its manufacturing assets, um, looking for new areas of marketing, and so on. And it's not happening. You know, you can see it from the numbers. So at the moment, I'm saying nothing attracts me here. Okay, well, what about this one? What what I love about um, John's article is that um, he he gives an example. You know, I'm a simple person, and I can understand concepts when they are exampleized, if that's a word. And John, you use NetBank as an example. And at the end, you say Microsoft has outperformed NetBank by 700% in US dollars (laughs) over the last five years. NetBank does 90% of its business within the confines of the borders of the Republic of South Africa. Mm -hmm. Please, John, give us the NetBank bank case because this helps me enormously okay i've used netbank because it's a big liquid stock as it happens we are, i've only got a moderate position in netbank mainly i've got the mid cap but it gets a bit complicated i've just chosen something that everyone will recognize okay the, i chose netbank because it's one of the cheapest banks and because it's principally south africa so um, you know, if you talk about Capitec, it's a different story. It's a much higher valuation. You talk about Standard Bank or ABSA, there's a lot in Africa. So Nedbank is kind of a good proxy for the domestic story. And the story is that, you know, Nedbank is basically as cheap as it ever gets. It's trading below book value on an 8 or 9% dividend yield with a return on equity that continues to rise and buy back the shares and lots of capital. So... The share is, it just doesn't really get cheaper than that. And 100% right, um, obviously the economy is under a lot of pressure, although the plus with Nedbank and other banks is they get to fund the energy transition in South Africa. So they have actually got some growth coming because they are funding that. But in essence, the share has dropped 60% since five years ago when everyone was piling in because of President Ramaphosa. And, you know, 60% 60% down in dollars. It used to trade five years ago. It was on a 12 PE. It's now on a 7 PE. Five years ago, it was on a 4% dividend yield. It's now on an 8.5% dividend yield. And so my point is, you can go and buy Microsoft now. I mean, you, you would have to be insane to go and buy. Microsoft <laughs> has just gone up in a straight line. for your, And in the last two or three months, there's the final blow off, which is this whole AI uh, mania, which has caused the shares that are exposed, like Microsoft, you'll pay 30 times record earnings for Microsoft, and you'll get a half a percent dividend yield. 
Or you can buy NetBank while it's gone up uh, three and a half times. NetBank is down 60% in the last five years. And you can get an 8.5% yield to start with. And I don't think there's any chance the dividend is being cut. Not this year, not next year. It'll probably actually grow. So when you start, plus, you know, the, the dividend yield gap between Microsoft and NetBank is 8%. I start 8% ahead of uh, Microsoft in year one in dividend. I like my odds when I start 8% ahead. It is the most hated share in the world, and Microsoft is the most loved. Okay, here we go with David Shapiro now, because David Shapiro <laughs> is the man. He doesn't understand I, tech. I, he doesn't uh, understand yeah. tech, but he loves tech no. when it comes to the companies no, no. that create the tech. Augmented reality now with Apple, for goodness sake. I mean, I've got to spend $3,500 if I want to on a set of goggles so I can see my family photos with a little bit more clarity. Mm. David, what about the Microsoft Nedbank argument from Mr. Bicard? Yeah, I, you know, I'm one of those maniacs who just <laughs> loves AI. You know, I'm just saying, hold on a sec. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't understand PEs. I don't understand dividend yield. I'm an accountant though, but I don't really understand uh, the valuation, those valuations, because they've never really um, kind of held true over time. You know, Microsoft. Um, what, what I mean by that is that to, to recreate a Microsoft today, I mean, would require an enormous amount of money, effort, um, whatever. You know, those are the hidden, um, the hidden, what's, what's, what's the assets of, uh, um, of a company like Microsoft. Yeah. When you look at AI, when you start to see, this is a game changer. And I say, when I say it's a game changer, and I'm not, this is not my opinion. This is just simply reading every day from uh, what what um, commentators say about it, those who are in the know. You know, when I see Mr. Hong, or H-U-N-G, whatever it is, bouncing around on a stage about NVIDIA, you know, I say, hold on a sec, he might have something around this. You know, there's something there that we don't quite understand how this is going to change the way that people respond, react, and so on. And I'm saying, well, I'm not going to be left out of this. You know, I own Microsoft. I've had it for, I don't know, 10, 15 odd years. It's given my client an enormous return, which I can't sell because they're going to have capital gains that will come out of their noses. Eventually, they're going to have to pay it. And I keep saying, okay, so where's Microsoft going to be four, five years down the line? You know, is, is it – yes, it might have a – it might have a setback. I see UBS that I follow quite closely still regarded as a neutral and saying the same kind of arguments that, that John's saying, that it's overpriced. But I don't want to lose my place. You know, I don't want to lose my place to, to maybe something like Nedbank. And therefore, I say, I can, I can, I can you know, stand this one down. You know, I can afford to hold this for a little bit longer and see where this AI goes because every day I'm getting – have you tried our new Bing? You know, have you tried our new Chat GPT? And when you try it, it's quite remarkable. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable what you can get out of it. So, yes, I, all it's, I'm saying is, it's, it's a little bit mm. cold, though, isn't it? I mean, you've got Rishi Sunak at the moment, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in Washington, and he's he's oh. he's suddenly started talking about you know the dangers of AI and people saying that uh, you know if you have a look at the way that humanity has evolved over the over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, we've destroyed. Destroyed. Humanity has destroyed, human beings rather, 
have destroyed 50% of the world's species because they are cleverer than those species. It's very simple. You can walk up to one of them and club mm. them on the head and they're dead and they're extinct. Yeah. Um, and they're saying that AI will become cleverer even than Bicard and Shapiro and club them over the head as well. And then we're, we're in trouble. It's, uh, not, it's not cleverer. All it's doing is it's reducing the time it took and it's much more reliable than human nature. Well, you can talk to me today and you can talk to me tomorrow and I'll give you different opinions on both days and then we'll talk again and I'll change my minds. I forget what I said. Your computer <laughs> doesn't do that. AI doesn't do that. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think when it comes to consistency, I think that's what's so incredibly important when it comes to um, just doing rote type tasks and so on. I think it's so important to have uh, those kind of tools, you know, from, and, 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 I, and, I, and all I'm doing is feeding back, you know, the, uh, uh, the reading that I've done. And, and I'm saying, you know, it, it's, it's sense when you listen to educationalists, when you listen to medical people where they tell you the benefits of this. No, that there's not going to be inconsistent. Um, well, that's what that, that, that's what you say. Maybe mm. someone will manipulate it. John, oh, what no. is you, John Bicard, what is your uh, uh, attitude <laughs> towards this? I mean, I know the 91 Value Fund probably doesn't hold uh, the sort of stocks that uh, <laughs> are, are now in, involved with augmented reality and artificial intelligence. But as a as a, as a, as a person that's been in the business for a few decades, what do you think about it? Well, I think it's another mania to come in mm. at the end of free money for 10 years and the, the world economy is slowing and it's tough to buy economically sensitive stocks when um, interest rates are, are rising so quickly and the economy is heading into a recession. So everyone's very scared of the traditional economic sensitive stocks. And along comes something called AI, which is basically being sold as doesn't matter what happens to the economy. Uh, AI will grow. So these shares, tech shares were really mm. expensive going into this, and this has just added another layer. And mm. there's no doubt that AI will grow, irrespective of the economy. But I just point out that the valuation has already discounted that. I mean, taking the most crazy of these examples, NVIDIA, Nvidia. I mean, the market mm. is a trillion dollars. Mm. The revenue is 25 billion. So it trades on 40 times revenue, not 40 times earnings, 40 times revenue. And this isn't a startup. Sometimes you get startups that trade on 40 times revenue because there's a one guy in a garage and he's got an idea. That's fair enough. This is a massive multinational company that trades on 40 times revenue. So I'm actually looking at the, the analyst consensus is that revenue will double in the next two years because obviously everyone's onto the AI. But you know what? Then... Uh, in two years' time, it'll be on 25 times revenue, 20 times revenue, 20 times revenue. It'll be in two years' time, even after that growth. You, can let the, you go through the maths. You cannot buy a stock on that valuation. of doesn't matter what it, its top line grows. doesn't matter what margins it'll achieve. You cannot buy stocks on 20 and 40 times revenue. You cannot make money. It's against the rules of finance. So... <laughs> Uh, it's against the rules. That's interesting. David, come in here and then talk to John about this. It's against the rules. You're, 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 you're against the rules. Oh, hold on a sec. I'll take my 8.5% dividend yield. And then hold on. I'll get 8.5% this year and I'll get 9 next year. I'll have 17.5% money back in two years' time. And you can buy a video 
40 times revenue, and we will see. Mm-hmm. Might be right to them, Lindsay, in three years' time. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm scribbling. Don't you worry about that, because I'm <laughs> scribbling away now, and David's <laughs> going to come in now because he's itching to say something. Slightly nervously, uh, I, I, I might add. Yeah. Not, not really. You know, I'm, I'm uh, not at all. Um, I, th- I think what we tend to forget is that uh, these businesses um, have the ability to use their technology. Not, you know, one assumes that they're static, but they keep growing. And I always use my example of my favorite company is a company that's very close to Lindsay and location, which is a company called ASL, ASML. Mm which makes the machines that makes the chips. And um, I, what's, what's the chap, the CEO's name? Heading or Hudding. I, can't, I can never remember his, his, his name. But he's, he's a doer Dutchman, you know. Uh, he's mm-hmm. not exactly the kind of person who's a cascorp. He's not uh, a gregarious person, you know. But when he tells you, listen, this is what we're going to grow at for the next 10 years, and he's got to stand by it simply because he's making the machines. You know, he knows his order books. He knows what's out there. And when he tells you, listen, we're going to grow our sales at X percentage every year for the next 10 years or something, you've got to believe him, you know. And and I would rather believe him than maybe some uh, 25-year-old with a CFA who's looking at spreadsheets and so on. And that that tends to, uh, you know, that tends to influence uh, my thought process. I'm saying, well, these are people in the industry. They know what's out there. They know what um, they have to produce in order to satisfy the demand for these various kinds of chips. And NVIDIA has a, um, has a start on all of these. They make it. Yes, they're going to face competition. Believe me, the competition is going to come from a number of other semiconductor operators. And that's up to NVIDIA to, to maintain its, uh, you know, its lead on all of these things. But these chips go at... I don't know, forty thousand dollars a, you know, a semiconductor and so on. But what's also happening is that AI has changed the whole complexion of um, the cloud. Uh, suddenly, every all the people in the cloud have now got to start changing um, their technology, you know, by demanding more um, updated uh, uh, semiconductors and so on. So you get this massive demand that's going to uh, be created. And I'm saying, okay, well, I'm going to wait. You know, I'm quite happy. NVIDIA is up 156% so far year to date. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I can live with that. You know, I'm even sure. if it comes down a bit, I'm saying, okay, I'm okay. I'm sure the you NVIDIA know, people can live with it as well. Mm. Uh, let, let's let, let's mm. talk now about uh, positioning. John, you've intimated that you shunned Ramaphoria all those years ago, and with good reason, because it was uh, it, it was over the top. It was a mania. Are you starting to embrace Ramaphobia? So, yeah, in the value fund, I basically I basically only own domestic South African shares now. I mean they. I don't own any, like David, I don't hold any of the the dual listed stocks because basically all of those uh, dual, the NASPASs and InBevs, I think are overpriced and certainly overpriced relative to the domestic stocks. So in the local fund, I've got 70% in South Africa and that 70% is all in South African shares, South African shares, not Rand Hedge, um, not... Uh, not dual listed, and then the thirty percent I've got offshore is in 
a lot of very cheap international value shares, which are the opposite of NVIDIA and Microsoft. <laughs> and then in the last month, um, I've hedged two-thirds of the currency up. So if you buy the value fund now, in the last five years, you have um, the, the shares offshore in dollars uh, have kept pace with the international somehow as value shares. But you benefit from, from the weakening rent. Now I've I've hedged in the at 1950. I took basically bought rands and sold dollars for two thirds of the offshore. So you, so my my dollar exposure is down from 35% down to 10%. Because hmm. I think the rand is completely oversold. And yes. at 1950, I'm happy to hold rands. Especially you know, it's, it's something else you've got to think about is when you buy the rands at 1950. You know, there's a 5% carry. In other words, you know, you earn 5% extra interest rates. So anything, if the RAND is anything better than 20, 50 in a year's time, it's a good idea to own RAND. So hmm. it's, it's not, this is not, I'm not just saying, you know, this is an idea. The fund is 100% positioned now um, for a recovery in dollar terms in the RAND assets. And I'll just say one thing that the key thing here is going to be load shedding. You know, the... Hmm. Load shedding, no one really saw this coming as, you know, I remember six or seven years ago looking at the Eskim accounts and saying there's a real problem here with the sustainability of, of Eskim, but I never, ever guessed the load shedding would be as bad as it is. But what the valuation of, if you can go and buy a South African share in a 7P and a 7% dividend yield, the implication is that load shedding is here to stay. And when I mean, you know, you, a share is a discounted mm -hmm. cash flow of, 20 years of profits. Mm -hmm. It's built into the price that the costs of diesel and the weak consumer demand because of load shedding will continue over pretty much the life of that asset. And the one thing, just as load shedding came unexpectedly badly to South Africa, I would point out that there are a lot of things, a lot of work being done, and any better than stage six outcome on load shedding is not priced into local shares. So it's no good looking today outside the window and saying we're on stage six, it's a disaster, I'm selling South African shares. Anyone can look out the window and see it's stage six. That is not a competitive advantage. What you need to do is say, what is going to be, when I look out the window in 12 months, and 24 months' time, what am I going to see? And I'm saying to you, if you see anything better than stage six in 12 and 24 months' time, you are going to make money buying South African shares at this level. And I would put the odds... So the, the shares have discounted a 100% chance of sustained stage six load shedding. And I don't know what the future holds, but any time priced, it's priced 100% against me, I'm happy to bet against it. And I would certainly say there's at least a 50% chance that in a year's time, uh, load shedding could be stage two or three. And the, the, the effect on the earnings of these companies as they spend less on diesel and as the SA consumer recovers a bit, means that all those costs come down and the top line goes up a bit and the profits return very strong. Very, very compelling argument you've just come, you've just come up with. Uh, David Shapiro, um, yeah, are you compelled after what he just said? <laughs> no. Not something compelled. No. I, I think I'll John's going to make money. Okay. The, um, the I, John's going to make money. I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not going to argue that. That, that points... Uh, because we're at that level now where everything is so bombed out that there's bound to be some kind of uh, recovery. Uh, how long it lasts, that's, that's the issue.
you know and and i think for me it's um, you know if i was in a trading fund if i was uh, in john's position where he you know he's not he's not what's the word uh, dictated by the same kind of constraints that i am mm. uh, in that sense you know i can't move in and out where you run private portfolios um one has to be very careful about uh, from a trading point of view also and continually taking profits but i have no doubt you know looking at some of the uh, those valuations and how far they have fallen that there's bound to be a recovery the only thing that worries me lindsay you know that uh, i've been coming to the us for a long time my yes. daughter lives here she was in new york she's in boston and 10 years ago plus i made a i made a decision to buy a one bedroom flat because we were spending so much on hotels and it proved you know the right kind of decision to make funny enough one bedrooms are not that uh, expensive and uh, you know relative to um you know relative to uh, two and three bedrooms and so on and even relative to down in the cape so when i look at the decision that i made then and i look at the price that i paid the rent that i paid and i look at where i am 10 years down the line there's no doubt that going offshore and making that decision was the right one to make you know and i'm saying i bought this when the rand was maybe 7 or 8 it's now 19 you know that's that's the point i'm trying to make so could i afford this place today absolutely not you know it would have been impossible for me to have uh, purchased this uh, this apartment now i'm not saying i'm i'm out exaggerating it a little bit but i mean it's mm. not as affordable as it was then. And that to me has always been an exercise of saying, hold on a sec, thank goodness I did what I did, you know, and uh, and so on. Thank goodness I bought the furniture. I had that, I, I, I told the story I tweeted when coming out of Central Park two days ago, there was a, a place, um, an Italian place here, that's a bakery, and I had $20 in my back pocket. Now work out what $20 is in Rand, that's 400 Rand. And um, I'm, I, I go in there and I buy two croissants and an orange juice. And the woman, I come to the till, she says, that's $23. I said, <laughs> $23? You're insane. You know, and I, I was thinking rands. You know, I wasn't thinking dollars. And and I had to give back one croissant, which is quite embarrassing when you're standing in a queue and you're in the the west side. I'd say so. Very shaming for you. Goodness me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what the point I'm making is that's you know that's how poor we become. And my big concern uh, against John's arguments about valuations are is hold on a sec. This is you know this has been a structural decline. For the last 30, maybe even longer than that. I don't know. This is since the 1960s. South Africa's just on that structurally declining level. The economy that I grew up with, that I went to the market with in the 1970s and 80s, is certainly not the economy that we're seeing now. And that's always at the back of my mind. You know, it's always bothering me. Okay, then you were prudent and, and, you, and, you took, and, and you took action and John becomes listening intently yeah. here and it's embarrassing yes. uh, John that uh, our colleague here our associate here uh, can't <laughs> afford two croissants and an orange juice uh, I presume that you would be more um, <laughs> more well prepared <laughs> when you go and buy your breakfast but just briefly without, I don't want to get too personal, why did you move to the States John? Uh, my children are at school here the ones at college and the ones finishing school. Okay. And for uh, we moved here a year ago, my wife and I to be closer to them. And 
you know, we spent a year on our own in in Cape Town, and we decided we have to be here. So that's yes. but and so I, I'm not going to really disagree with David on the longer term because, you know, there is a reason my children are at school in the U.S. So I'm not arguing with that. But there's a moment if you want to put the to align yourself with that longer term strategy, that's fine. But there are. There are times to do it. And what upsets me a bit is I wake up every day and on Twitter I see uh, comments like, get all your money out of South Africa. It's going to zero. Put your money. And, and you can't forget that when mm-hmm. you take your money out of South Africa and you give it to an asset manager to buy offshore equities, you will land up with an enormous amount of your money in the U.S. stock market because the U.S. market is 60% of the index. So even if uh, the fund manager doesn't like the U.S., he's still going to have 50% in the U.S., so you cannot lose track of the that you are taking your hard-earned one rand and you're getting five <laughs> U.S. cents yes. for it. And then you take your five U.S. cents, <laughs> you've sold your net bank on an 8.5% yield, and you take your five U.S. cents and then you go and buy NVIDIA and Microsoft on 40, 20 <laughs> revenue. That is not going to be a good outcome. And it's... People forget. So you might... It might be a good outcome on a 20 of you, but you could... Really back mm-hmm. on, back to 2001. There are a lot of similarities today to 2001. And, you know, the advantage of being an old guy like me is I was running that fund, this fund in 2001. And the rent was 12 to the dollar in 2000, mm-hmm. which was, by the way, even weaker than it is today, adjusting for purchasing power parity. And everyone took their money offshore and put it into the tech markets overseas. And the next seven years, South African rand strengthened, the economy did okay, the shares went up. You can, it took 15 years. This is an important thing. In 2001, the next time the rand went through 12 to the dollar was 15 years later. So imagine that. You took your money out, you invested there, the tech shares went down for seven years, and the rand strengthened for seven years. And the, the gap between the two is enormous. So all I'm saying is the rand is 20 to the dollar, it could easily be, the rand could easily be 17 to the dollar in three years' time. So there's a 15%, uh, 10, 15% yeah. in, mm. in the dollar. And the shares, something like Nedbank, in two years' time, instead of being an 8.5% yield, you know, South Africa's a bad place. So let's say it's on a, you know, 4 or 5% yield. But nevertheless, the earnings, the dividend will grow. The share, that means if, if, if Nedbank is on a 5% yield in, in three years' time, you know, the share price will be up 30 or 40%. The rand could be 10 or 15% stronger than the dollar. You add that up, and that's not a very bullish assumption. The next minute, Nedbank is up 50 or 60% in dollars. So if you're swapping, you need Microsoft to beat that 50 or 60% in dollars. You know, it's going to have to go some from $340 to be up 60%. And that's not even assuming things go right for South Africa, which they probably won't. It just means things stop getting so bad. Okay. And so, so, so I'm not sort of disagreeing with David. I'm just saying everything is timing. And your entry point is mm. very important. And it's not the entry point to be swapping your, 
your rands for dollars at this particular moment. Well, that's a very good. That's a very good um, and, and very passionate uh, finality to your argument. And uh, next time that you start to go into the rand market in order to hedge your portfolio at the Value Fund at ninety one, John, please give me a call because if you got nineteen fifty, uh, then I want to know when you're buying uh, when when you're buying the dollars back at seventeen seventeen fifty uh, because you've done very well there. Uh, David, final word from you, please, before you go to Central Park. <laughs> I've been Take already. 25. Take $25 <laughs> today, Dave. <laughs> You're not kidding me. <laughs> I, you know, Lindsay, I, to, be, to be fair, I, I'm influenced not by what John's saying in any way, and nor am I um, what's the word, criticizing him or again. What, the way that I approach the market is I've always been a theme investor, and I've always looked at what's going to drive global economies in the next five, ten years. Um, I've never been influenced by excessive valuations. You know, many of the companies attract those valuations simply because of their place in the market, and that it would include a Microsoft and Alphabet and so on. Uh, and I've always used the uh, Richmond uh, point of view. You know, as long as I've been around, Richmond has always been expensive, and no one's ever bought it because its uh, its valuations were not compelling. And, and, you know, if you've held Richmond, I mean, you know exactly what kind of returns you've done. And I have the same things for, for LVMH and various other luxury companies. You know, my best company is Ferrari. Yes. Uh, I love Ferrari simply because there are so many silly people in this world who are prepared to pay that amount for a motor car mm. and line up and, uh, and so on. So that's, that's where I come from. I, I'm looking and I say, what are the driving themes? And there's no doubt that AI is going to change the way that we think and conduct ourselves and do business and uh, electric vehicles the whole climate issue all of these are major major compelling forces and those are the companies that I like to buy you know simply because of uh, and I, I, I don't I buy, you know I don't buy companies that are uh, making robotics that you might use in 10 years time every business you buy regardless of whether it's um, you know it is making revenue it is making enough money to keep plowing back into its own business and develop its brands and so on. You know, it fits all of those. The kind of valuations don't scare me. Very good. Not even NVIDIA. <laughs> uh, I, I find it very scary, just like Tesla would have scared anybody a, a, a year or so I, no, ago. No, I wouldn't have bought Tesla because he's a nut. That's the same. I don't like the Yeah, that's a personality thing. No, but it's the no, same theory no, when it comes to no, uh, John's no. uh, valuation story. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's too expensive. But you know what? Anyway, gentlemen, it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, two, <laughs> opposing, uh, two opposing views, uh, but both have been very successful for both of you. So thank you very much indeed from New York. Um, that was John Bickard, portfolio manager, uh, responsible for the uh, 91 Value Fund. He's talking to us, or was talking to us, I think from the Upper West Side on 86th, and David yeah. Shapiro near the Lincoln Center on 62nd. Two big shots from the Big Apple. Thank you very much, gentlemen. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.